Well, I, I've loved these last couple of weeks. Uh, the, the Olympics has been a real highlight for me. I, I guess some of you are sick to the back teeth of it, and just uh, as you arrived in church, you thought you might be able to forget about it, and here I am raising it again. But uh, a friend of mine from this church and I were talking this week about, um, you know, we were quite inspired by, uh, by being Olympians and what we could do to train in the next four years. And I suddenly realised that unless uh, tiddlywinks becomes an Olympic sport, I haven't got a lot of hope. But um, we, we thought maybe we could take up archery. What can a, a guy in his mid-40s do to be an Olympian? Well, maybe archery. It doesn't seem to have to run very hard. So uh, if I suddenly take up archery, that's it. 2012 is in my sights. Well, look, I, I've loved it. Um, I, I guess there are some who are pleased to see the back of it. But whether you love it or hate it, you can't but be impressed by the dedication and, and commitment of the athletes. I mean, those who don't do archery, you know, I, I gather that the Australians are saying that the only things that we win gold, gold in are things we sit down on, you know, sort of rowing and bikes and things like that. Well, uh, still, it's impressive, isn't it? Uh, the commitment in training for the far, last four years of these, uh, of these elite athletes to, to push their bodies to the limit, uh, the single-mindedness that they've had in, in sacrificing everything else for the cause. You know, they have virtually no other life. This is their life. And then that, that dedication to avoid all other distractions, to work for one thing, an Olympic gold. See, these athletes are on a mission. Nothing will deflect them from it. And as we turn to the book of Acts, we see the same sort of dedication, uh, greater even than athletics. The apostles are on a mission to take the gospel to the world. And they will let nothing distract them or get in their way. Uh, We see it right through the Bible. Paul uh, can write in Philippians in this way. He talks of straining towards what is ahead, of pressing on to win the prize. Uh, When he writes to Timothy in in the last letter that he writes to Timothy, he can write at the end of his life of a commitment and dedication to the gospel as he says, I have run the race. Now it is that commitment that today's disciples of Jesus need to demonstrate. For the mission is incomplete. The race isn't yet finished. The baton has been passed on to us uh, and hopefully, unlike the Brits and the Americans, we won't drop it. We need to take the gospel to the world, to everyone who walks planet Earth. And as we look at Acts this morning, we'll see how we should go about that task If you've got the handout in front of you, you'll see the first point, the strategic nature of gospel ministry. You see, Jesus' mandate was to reach the world. Uh, Do you remember? Well, we had it earlier in the service, didn't we? Uh, Kate's been teaching the children and teaching us uh, this verse, so there's no need to turn it up. But Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus' instructions to the twelve apostles. Do you remember how it goes? Uh, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Witnessing to the end of the world. It was a huge task. How do 12 people reach the world? Uh, Clearly you have to be strategic when you only have limited resources. Oh yeah, they had the Holy Spirit coming upon them. Uh, In that sense they didn't have limited resources. But at the time there were still only 12 of them. And we see that that strategic uh, aspect to mission as we read right through uh, the book of Acts. Paul went to Thessalonica because it was strategic. Look at chapter 17, verse 1. He passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia. 
do you see? But he stayed in Thessalonica. Uh, Thessalonica was the, the capital of the Roman province of Macedonia. It was a seaport on the main route between Rome and the east. One writer describes the city as the key to the whole of Macedonia. That's why Paul stayed there. Paul knew that if he established a church there in Thessalonica, he could reach people from many nations because many people from many nations passed through Thessalonica on the trade route. They heard the gospel, they would take the gospel back to their nations. That's one of the reasons why I'm so thrilled to be in Sheffield. Sheffield is not dissimilar, not as a city of international trade, but of international learning. Every year, thousands of students come to study in Sheffield from all over the world. I am really excited about the appointment of Jonathan Norgate as our international worker. He and his wife Zoe and their children Max and Poppy have just started with us. Let me ask you to pray for them that they will quickly make contact with internationals and have great wisdom in knowing how to establish establish an international work from here. See, our desire is that internationals who come to this great city would hear the gospel, become established in the gospel, and when they leave Sheffield and and go home, they would take the gospel with them all over the world. Is that thrilling? I have a dream that in years to come, former international Sheffield students will be planting new churches and strengthening existing churches in the four corners of the earth because they became established in Christ here. See, having Jonathan with us uh, to work with internationals is strategic gospel ministry. Well, pray for him. Will you pray too for our church planting initiative? We want to plant a church every two years for the next 20 years from this church. Maybe more, but that being the minimum. So that in years to come, as folk move to Sheffield and they ask, are there any good Bible teaching churches in Sheffield? People will laugh and say, any good churches? There are dozens. We have the aim, you see, to have a good Bible teaching church in every community in Sheffield because some people will never come to Fullwood and because this building has a capacity. See, our church planting programme is intent to be strategic with the resources we have. Keep sending people out. The strategic nature of gospel ministry then took Paul to Thessalonica. That's why he passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia. And uh, one of his strategies was always to go to the synagogue. You can see that there uh, in verses 1 and 2. That was part of his strategy. The strategic nature of gospel ministry. Secondly, if you uh, turn over the page of the handout, the unchanging content of gospel ministry. The unchanging content of gospel ministry. Listen carefully, uh, if you will, to what Paul said in the synagogue. Look at verse 2 of Acts 17. As his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. Now look, those verses, verses 2 and 3, tell us what Paul said and how he said it. We'll come back to what he said in a moment. Firstly, notice how Paul spoke that the things he said, not just the things he said, but the, uh, the way he said them. Look at those uh, key words in verses 2, 3 and 4. Uh, he reasoned, he explained, he proved, he proclaimed. And verse 4, he persuaded. I love those words. Look at, let's look at them in detail. He reasoned, 
See what that tells us? The gospel is reasonable. It is logical. It can be reasoned out. Uh, Caroline was telling me about a programme she saw last week featuring Professor Richard Dawkins. Uh, She was uh, saying how amazed she was at how anti-Christian he is. Uh, Well, uh, listen to what he writes in his book, The, The God Delusion, right at the beginning. If this book works as I intend, religious readers who open it will be atheists when they put it down. What presumptuous optimism. Of course, dyed-in-the-wool faith heads are immune to argument. Their resistance built up over years of childhood indoctrination using methods that took centuries to mature. That's how he describes us. Dyed-in-the-wool faith heads, immune to argument. Now you see, he's not only patronising, he's wrong. The gospel is reasonable. It can be argued in the best sense of that word. Indeed, it should be argued, reasoned out. So when I tell people about Jesus, I can explain logically and reasonably why I'm a Christian. Being a Christian is not about a subjective emotional need or an airy-fairy hunch that maybe there's a God up there and hopefully there's a heaven to look forward to. It's reasonable to be a Christian. You don't have to throw your mind away. Paul reasoned, uh, secondly in verse 3, he explained a a similar word, uh, and uh, you could say all the same things that I've just said using that word, but I love this word because while it is full of logic and rational content, it's also a word of patience and thoughtfulness towards others, isn't it? He explained. Explaining things to those who don't get it is really hard work and at times very frustrating. You need to be patient when you're explaining things. When our children come home from school and and they can't do their maths, on the whole, uh, it's Caroline uh, that uh, does the homework with them, uh, to my shame, but she tends to do it. But when they just can't get it and I have a go, I have to explain it to them uh, really carefully and still they don't get it. And it's really hard work. I have to ask for the patience of Job when they don't get it. I can see it. It seems obvious to me. Why don't they get it? Now, isn't that how it is with the Gospel? And whether it's explaining maths to to my eight-year-old girls or or the Gospel to a 48-year-old, we're going to need patience when we explain. I think of a woman in her 50s, she'd... uh, I'd been a churchgoer for years and by her own admission she'd never really understood the gospel. She'd been attending church for years but it never clicked. And uh, once she'd uh, explained that to me I uh, uh, met with her along with a Christian friend of hers uh, to go through the gospel. Uh, as we talked and we, we met for several weeks running she just didn't grasp it. Uh, I, I thought of every way that I could explain it. Uh, looking for different angles to come from. And then suddenly it all fell into place for her. And quite out of the blue she got it and then she became a Christian there and then. Now that was great, but the weeks beforehand I was tearing my hair out. It takes time to explain. You have to be patient. Paul reasoned, he explained, and uh, then also thirdly in verse 3, you see, he proved. Again, a crucial word. I love the word. Think of a a lunch that I had with uh, someone earlier in the year. Someone who isn't a Christian. He'd come along to something and then we followed it up with a lunch together. And um, uh, we'd been talking about Jesus for about an hour while we were uh, eating our lunch. And he uh, then said to me this. He said, you know, at the end of the day, there's no proof. 
It's just about faith, isn't it? Now that isn't it at all. Although so many people seem to think that way. Again, listen to Dawkins. He says, another thing that I cannot help remarking upon is the overweening confidence with which the religious assert minute details for which they neither have nor could have any evidence. Perhaps it is the very fact that there is no evidence to support theological opinions. See, he's saying there's no, there's no evidence, so uh, people sort of uh, you know, go into minute detail to try and sort of throw other people off. Well, that's what people think. But Paul didn't think that at all. He could prove. Here's the evidence, he would say. Here's proof of what I'm saying, of what I believe. Uh, Christians don't always help in this. Uh, when good and searching questions are, are asked uh, by unbelievers, I've uh, often heard Christians respond, oh, that's where you've just got to have faith. Now, please, can I ban that uh, phrase from our lips uh, from now on? That is not how the Bible uses the word faith at all. Faith is not about mustering up something from deep inside to accept things that are illogical and inexplicable. That somehow I've just got to try harder to believe that and if I really try hard then I'll believe it. That's not faith at all. It's not the way the Bible uses that word. And keep your, or your finger in Acts and uh, come uh, back with me just to uh, uh, one book to John chapter 20 and you'll see the way the Bible uses the word faith. John chapter 20 verses 30 and 31. Page 1090 in the church Bibles. John chapter 20 verse 30. See what John can write right at the end of his gospel? He says, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe and the word could be equally translated have faith or trust. It's the same word. These are written that you may have faith, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, by putting your faith in him, you may have life in his name. And you see, that's very important. John says there are a whole ton of things that Jesus did that I haven't even written about. I'm not asking you to trust in those things that you don't even know about. That's verse 30. No, verse 31. I've written these things down. I've told you what really happened, that you may have faith. I'm asking you to put your faith in, to trust in, to believe in the things that you do know about, not the things that you don't know about. The things that I've laid out about, the historical facts that I've put in this book. The point is this. There is evidence to prove the existence of God. Look at Jesus. There is evidence that he is God. Look at his miracles. There is evidence that he rose from the dead and therefore of life beyond the grave. And in our evangelism, we are to prove these things to others. We are never to say to them, oh, that's just where you've got to have faith. We're to show them the facts. Now look, if you're here this morning as someone who's not yet convinced about Jesus, thank you for coming. It's tremendous that you've come along this morning. Let me reassure you that to become a Christian, you are not expected to accept things without evidence. You don't have to throw your mind away. Keep your mind in gear. Ask questions and you'll find there are answers. Paul proved and then fourthly, verse 3, he proclaimed. Uh, back to Acts, Acts 17, verse 3. He proclaimed. 
I love that word as well. It's a word that uh, we've largely lost in the church in Britain today, but we seem to be ashamed to proclaim. I was uh, speaking at Cambridge University Christian Union Mission a few years back, and uh, I was doing the lunchtime talks, uh, apologetics meetings, and uh, we had some feedback from the Christians through the week, and I was really grateful for one comment. Uh, One Christian said this, it seems that we are presenting the gospel as something that people can make their minds up about, offering it to them as as if they can take it or leave it. We should be calling them to repent. From a student, wise words from young lips. See, the gospel is not something that we can simply make our minds up about. The gospel comes from God, the Lord of heaven and earth. It is a proclamation from the king of the universe. It is actually a command from him to repent and believe. And so there needs to be that declaratory element in our evangelism. We are announcing truth from God. This is not up for discussion. The gospel is not just one of many ideas in the public square that is fighting for a hearing. The gospel comes from him. It is his truth. Proclamation. And that leads to the fifth of these great words in verse 4. Paul persuaded See, if the gospel is a message from God and a message from God that tells us we are in serious need of salvation, we need to be rescued, then we need to be people who persuade others to believe it. Um, Our children made tea for us on Friday. Uh, It was a real milestone in our family. They'd never done that before. Uh, They'd actually uh, spent the afternoon, well, the last part of the afternoon, giving Caroline and I a foot massage. I don't know what came over them. Um, and uh, so we had the feet in a, in a bowl of water and then they gave us a, a foot massage eat and then they said we'll make tea for you uh, you know we, we, we nearly fainted at that point and, uh, and uh, so off they went and they, they made the toast it was toast they were only eight that was terrific so they made the toast brought everything in we didn't move brought everything in and um, I had to butter all the toast but apart from that it was great and uh, it was terrific and that was nice but one of the greatest moments was when Susanna said to me Daddy, I turned the toaster off because I had to stick a knife in to get a piece of toast in. (laughs) I was thrilled she turned the toaster off before she put the knife in. Over the years, as they watched me do the toast and stick the knife in, I've always turned it off and I've already told them to turn it off because otherwise they'd electrocute themselves. And they've become persuaded of that. What a relief. (laughs) Our relaxing afternoon would have gone to the hospital. Now look, when we grasp how important the gospel is, we want to persuade people to turn to Jesus. Because unless they do, they're in great danger. More danger even than sticking a knife in the toaster. Paul reasoned, he explained, he proved, he proclaimed, and he persuaded. Aren't those five words brilliant? And lastly on this point, note that he did it all, verse 3, from the Scriptures. See, the Bible is our authority. As we tell others about Jesus, I'm not to explain what I think. I'm not to be proclaiming what I think. I'm not to be persuading people to believe what I think. Who cares what I think? My thoughts are not particularly spectacular thoughts. They're very rarely original thoughts. There's certainly no worth more not worth any more than what you think or or what Richard Dawkins think or what anyone else thinks. I'm to tell people what the Bible says, what God thinks. 
And actually when I do that in evangelism, it's wonderfully liberating. Because when people disagree or don't like what they hear, I can say to them gently, look, come, that's what Jesus said. And then their issue is with Jesus, isn't it? It's not with me. Christian, be sure to take a Bible with you wherever you go. Learn how to answer questions from the Bible. Well, what Paul said and then um, how he said it. Uh, What Paul said. Now, we've seen how he said it. Now, what he said. Um, Verse 3. Do you see it there? Explaining and proving that Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ. See, the Gospel is about Jesus. It's about him being the Christ, the the, the Lord's anointed, the Messiah, the the Saviour of the world. It's about his death and his resurrection. He is at the heart of the message. He is the core of Christianity. So often when Christians say they've witnessed, they've told people they go to church. It's not a bad thing to tell people. But be sure to realise that until we've told people Uh, about Jesus, about his death and resurrection, about who he is. Now, we haven't really spoken of the gospel. And more, very specifically, we need to be um, telling people about his death and resurrection. Do you see it there in verse 3? That was the focus of Paul's message in Thessalonica. For three weeks, verse 2, three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. Well, the strategic nature of gospel ministry, the unchanging content of of gospel ministry. Thirdly, the expected response of gospel ministry, verses 4 to 9. And in these verses, you'll see uh, there's two responses in Thessalonica. uh, Repentance and rejection. Repentance, so verse 4. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. What a terrific response. People became Christians. Uh, friends, let me ask you, do you believe that's going to happen? Do you expect God to work when his word is proclaimed? The gospel is powerful. It is powerful. It changes lives. But I, I can't help pers- um, comparing this to, to many people uh, who call themselves Christians today who've lost confidence in the gospel. The gospel confidence is being eroded. I think of someone I know well, a minister, who was leading a service at another church that was going through a time of vacancy. Their their vicar had left and they're waiting for another vicar to come and so this uh, fellow went and took uh, the service at another church. And after the service, the church warden asked him, what's the secret of the success of your church? He came from a, a large church. What's the secret of the success of your church, he said. And this man replied, well, it's no secret. We believe and preach the Bible. That's it. Oh, the church warden said, yeah, I, I know you do that. You're, you're well known for that. But what else do you do that makes so many people come to your church? He said, we preach and, and believe the Bible and we do it with conviction. That's it. See, friends... I expect the Bible to bring a response. This, is a power, this message, this gospel is powerful. It changes lives. That's what happened in Thessalonica. Uh, Paul preached and a little church was born. Can you imagine Paul and Silas' excitement as they went to bed that night having seen people believe the gospel? Today, Thessalonica, tomorrow the world... 
But, verse 5, but the Jews were jealous. Yep, I expect repentance, but I should also expect rejection. See, there are always two responses when the gospel is proclaimed, both repentance and rejection. Some years ago I heard an Australian preacher say this, Some churches are full of unbelievers because the gospel has not been proclaimed clearly enough for them to reject it. That striking? Some churches are full of unbelievers because the gospel has not been proclaimed clearly enough for them to reject it. See, the gospel faithfully proclaimed always sees both responses. Well, the gospel was certainly proclaimed, preached clearly in Thessalonica and verse 5, the Jews were jealous. And that's no surprise, is it? Paul and Silas had waltzed into their synagogue and from right under their noses some Jews and a large number of God-fearing Greeks had been converted. The leaders of these synagogues were, were, of this synagogue were jealous. They, they were hopping mad. And so look at the uh, extreme lengths they went to. Verse 5. They rounded up some bad characters from a marketplace, formed a mob and started a riot in the, in, in the city. The old King James Version translates it like this. They took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort. I love that. <laughs> yeah, well, it's very quaint language. Of course, it's far too polite. The Jews rounded up a hit squad. rent mob thugs from the Macedonian underworld. That's really how it ought to be translated. You can see it now, can't you? Used shekels wrapped in a brown paper bag being handed over to the most undesirable characters they could find loitering in the marketplace. This was an organised riot. And so, verse 5, they they rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city officials, shouting, these men who caused trouble all over the world have now come here. Jason was uh, dragged, kicking and screaming before the city officials and they wrongly accused him. See what they said? Jason has welcomed these people into his house and they're all defying Caesar's decrees. (laughs) Jason was accused of aiding and abetting but since when has it been a crime to offer hospitality to innocent people? And for me the coup de grace has to be the second half of verse 7. They are all defying Caesar's decrees saying there is another king, one called Jesus. See these Jews said of Paul and Silas that they were defying Caesar's decrees. It's ironic isn't it? Whenever did the Jews bother about Caesar's decrees being defied? They hated Caesar. Now they were jealous of people being converted and they were just looking for an excuse. They drove Paul and Silas out of the city, verse 10, and they still weren't finished once Paul and Silas had gone from Thessalonica on to Berea. Look at verse 13. When the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, They went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. Berea was 40 miles away. They can just hop on a bus or or let the train take the strain. This was a long journey to Berea, but they were determined to stop Paul and Silas preach the gospel. Do you see the extent that people will go to when the gospel is faithfully proclaimed? There will always be opposition. All over the world, of course, this kind of response is happening to people who proclaim the gospel today. All over the world, real, faithful Christian 
brothers and sisters are standing up to proclaim the gospel and their lives are in danger. They are being chased down by those who hate the gospel. And I've got to say, as I I looked at that this week, I found myself ashamed. Today, here we are in Britain. When we tell the gospel, the worst we get is a snub from a friend or, or passed over for a promotion at work. But even that is too much for us. And so we keep quiet. Nothing would keep Paul and the apostles quiet. Wonderfully, finally, the last point, we see even persecution helped the spread of the gospel. And over the page on the handout, the unexpected swell of gospel ministry, verses 10 to 14. See, we've just seen how the gospel went from Thessalonica to Berea. It went because Paul and Silas had been chased out of Thessalonica. And then the gospel went on to Athens because Paul and Silas were hounded out of Berea. Look again at verse 13. When the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, they went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The brothers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. The men who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him there as soon as possible. Now you see, we see the same, it's the same pattern all the way through the book of Acts. Persecution swells gospel ministry. Uh, Come back with me for this, just a little chase through uh, the Acts of the Apostles as we come to a close now. Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Come right back to the beginning, page 1092 if you will. And just see how it is persecution that sees the gospel um, advancing again and again. Again, Acts chapter 1 verse 8, the the, the verse that controls the structure of the whole book. Acts chapter 1 verse 8, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the world. How will the gospel go from Jerusalem to the world? How does that happen? Well look, it happens through rejection, opposition and persecution. So once the church was established in Jerusalem, we read in chapter 8 verse 1. Move on to chapter 8 verse 1. How does it get from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria? Chapter 8, verse 1. Saul was giving his approval of Stephen's death. And on that day a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem and all except the apostles were scattered where? Throughout Judea and Samaria. Look down to verse 4. Those who'd been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. You see, persecution comes and it pushes the Christians out. They they, they probably were quite happy where they were, preaching the gospel in Jerusalem. Persecution comes and they move out to, uh, to Samaria and Judea. Meanwhile, Luke tells us that the persecution in Acts chapter 8 had pushed some even further afield. Look at chapter 11, verse 19. Now those who'd been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen travelled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Well, some of them, however, went from Cyprus and Cyrene, uh, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks, also telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. And the Lord's hands were with them and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. You see, again, it's because of persecution it goes even further. And then look on to chapter th- uh, 13 verse 49 there are other verses as well but I'll stop with this one 
Acts chapter 13, verse 49. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region, but the Jews incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region, so they shook the dust from their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. See, it happens all the way through Acts. The Lord uses persecution to swell gospel ministry and to see that the name of Jesus reaches the ends of the earth. Of course, we we should never go looking for trouble. But when it comes through faithful proclamation of the gospel, be encouraged, the Lord will use it to further his kingdom. So the faithful Christian at work who is forced out of their workplace, gets a job somewhere else and has opportunity to tell even more people about Jesus. Or whole churches, I think of Christ Church Central, the church plant from here nearly five years ago now, forced out of the Church of England through enemies of the gospel. Now a thriving, established church. Fifty people left here. Nearly five years ago now, it's a church of 250. Just about to start a second Sunday service because they can't fit everyone in thinking about, uh, about church planting themselves, and now, free from all the restraints of the structures of the Church of England, they can plant a church anywhere in the city and no one can stop them. Do you see how persecution furthers gospel ministry? We never go looking for it. We don't want it. But when it comes, if we're faithful with the gospel, it will only cause to further the gospel in the sovereign purposes of God. Isn't that exciting? Our job, then, is to proclaim the gospel to have the same drive that Olympic athletes have for winning a gold medal. Putting aside everything else and saying, this is what I'm on earth to do. This is God's mission and I want to be a part of that. We need to be strategic, to be faithful in preaching Jesus, to expect response and when we come up against opposition, the Sovereign Lord will use even that to further swell the Gospel, further and fuller. Let's pray together.